If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the book of Job. The book of Job believed to be the oldest book of all the books of the Bible. We're looking at chapter 14 today and focusing our attention primarily on one verse, Job chapter 14 and verse 14. Today's message is entitled, If a Man Dies, Will He Live Again? And this is another message in our series of looking at various verses of Scripture throughout the Bible that contain the word if and using that as a basis for the message. And of course, today, the one we're dealing with has to do with the subject of death. And if a man or if a person dies, will he live again? That's the question that Job asked in Job chapter 14 and verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. I have been told that in London, England, at the British Museum, you can find a very strange looking mummy. It's over 3,000 years old and is in the shape of a question mark, suggesting perhaps unknowing to him, but nonetheless raising a question for those who view it, the same question that Job was asking, if a man dies, will he live again? This is the most frequently asked question of all history. It has been asked more than any other question formed by the lips of mankind. It was the first question, no doubt, that went through the mind of Adam and Eve as they looked upon the body of their son who had been slain by Abel, by Cain, excuse me. It has been asked by every generation of people ever since that time. And when the last human being comes to die as he or she breathes out the last breath, the question of Job shall still be, on dying lips, if a man dies, will he live again? The reason why this question is so important is because we all know that it's going to happen to all of us sooner or later. There's something that every person's life has in common with a street or a book or a movie, and that is it comes to an end. Your life has an ending just as surely as it has a beginning. Your heart has only so many beats and then it will stop beating. Your lungs only have so many breaths and then they will breathe no more. In 2006, Billy Graham wrote the book, The Journey. He writes, life is a journey and like any other journey, it has a starting point. You had no choice about it, of course, any more than you had a choice about your parents or the color of your eyes, or your race, or your gender. But the moment you were born, you were embarked on a journey, the journey of life. And like every other journey, he writes, it has an end. It may come suddenly and unexpectedly, or after years of declining health, but it will come. And like your birth, you have no choice about it. You can ignore it, you can laugh about it, but that it will not change its inevitability. A wise poet once said that death comes equally to all and makes us all equal when it comes. 
Now, there are a lot of compromising answers to this question. If a man dies, will he live again? Atheists say no, that there is no such thing as life after death. When you die, that's it. You are buried and you are forgotten. Agnostics simply say, well, there's really no way of knowing. Nobody knows whether or not you will ever continue to live. Many Eastern religions say, yes, you will. Uh, they believe in what's called reincarnation. That is, uh, when you die, based on how good or how bad you were, will determine how you will come back and what you will be when you come back. I read about a woman who was worried about her husband uh, after he died, whether or not he made it to heaven. So she decided to try and contact his spirit by having a seance. Sure enough, after using the usual mumbo-jumbo of calling to the spirits, her husband's voice was heard answering, Hello, Margaret, this is me, Henry. She answered, I just have to know if you're happy there in the afterlife. What's it like there? Well, he answered, Oh, it's much more beautiful here than I could ever imagine. The sky is bluer. The air is cleaner. And the pastures are much more lush and green than I had ever expected. And the only thing we do all day long is eat and sleep, eat and sleep, eat and sleep. His wife shouted out with joy, thank God you've made it to heaven. Heaven, he answered. I'm not in heaven. I'm, in a, I'm a buffalo in Montana. Some deny the very existence of heaven or hell. But we know the Egyptians, for example, believed in the afterlife because the pyramids to this very day still stand as a testimony of their belief in life after death and all of the things that were placed there so they could use it when they arrived on the other side of the river of death. Indians, we know, have their happy hunting ground. They believe that that's where you go when you die. But notice what Job says. If a man dies, well, please understand that Job is not questioning the certainty of death. Death is certain. And the Bible repeatedly warns us and informs us of that fact. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9.5, for the living know they will die. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, both great men and small will die. Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, it shall die. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam, all die. And in Hebrews 9, 27, the writer of Hebrews says, inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, there is the judgment. We could go on and on with verses of scripture taken from God's holy word to talk about the certainty of death. So Job was not posing uh, a, a, a question of doubt. It was a hypothetical question that he was asking. Remember that the word if can also be translated since. So it could read, since we're going to die, we would like to know the answer. Will we continue to live? Well, in 1926... An 11-year-old boy by the name of Johnny Sylvester got kicked in the head by a horse. 
the wound on his forehead got badly infected and doctors informed his parents the sad news that Johnny was not going to make it. So Johnny said to his parents, I wish I could see Babe Ruth hit a home run before I die. Well, urgent telegrams were sent to Babe Ruth, who was at that time a player for the New York Yankees. And the Yankees were playing the St. Louis Cardinals in the 1926 World Series for baseball. Babe Ruth sent back from St. Louis a package that included two baseballs, one autographed with the members of the New York Yankees and the other autographed by the players for the St. Louis Cardinals. He included a note that said, I'm going to knock a home run for you on Wednesday, which was game four of the World Series. Johnny Sylvester instantly became one of the most famous boys in baseball history. Did Babe Ruth slug one for Johnny? Yes, he did. In fact, Babe Ruth hit three home runs in that fourth game of the World Series. And to top it all off, Babe Ruth visited Johnny at his home in Essex Falls, New Jersey. Were the doctors right? Did Johnny die? Yes, they were right. Johnny died, but not until he was 74 years old. As we consider the most frequently asked of all questions in history, there are four things that we want to examine and develop, and they're listed for you on your outline. First of all, there is a statement that Job makes about life, and then he laments about death, and then he raises the question about resurrection, and then we have to skip over all the way to the 19th chapter as he expresses his confidence about the future. So let's look at this first idea that he makes a statement about life. And there are three things that he says about life, all of them addressing the fact that life is very brief. We may live to be a hundred plus, and many people do nowadays, but the inevitable still happens. Life ends at death. And at best, it is brief. He uses three examples. He says in verse 1, go back to verse 1 of Job chapter 14. In the first verse of chapter 14, he says that life is filled with troubles. Look at it in verse 1. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Well, we know that that was true for Job. If you keep your place here at the 14th chapter and just turn back to the very first chapter of the book of Job and you will find exactly what Job was referring to as to how his life was filled with so much trouble. You remember setting the scene for what he says beginning with verse 13 uh, that there was a day when the angels appeared before the throne of grace and uh, uh, among them was Lucifer. Evidently, he still had access, although he had been excommunicated uh, from heaven, uh, he could still approach the throne of grace or thro God's throne. And so uh, God, God asked, he, he knew what uh, Satan would been up to, but he still asked the question, what, what have you been doing? He said, I've been going up and down the earth to and fro. And he said, well, what do you think about my man Job? And he said, oh, you're protecting him. You're building a shield around him. Uh, he would be a fool not to honor you and believe in you because you give him everything he wants. He's prospered and all these things. And so uh, the Lord said, okay, um, 
you can do whatever you wish. You just can't touch Job. And so he began to lose everything. Job began to lose everything that he had. So look at Job chapter 1, verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and, and the um, uh, Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the serpents uh, servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked, I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord, and through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. But did you notice in verses 16 and 17 and 18, it says, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking. Just one right after the other. No soon had the words come from the lips of one servant and then the another one was there telling him bad news. Just bang, 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 bang. One bad news after another. And I think that's why Job is saying now in chapter 14 how short life can be and it is full of trouble. The word trouble there literally means agitation. So he's saying it doesn't necessarily have to involve death, but it just those things that just aggravate you to no end that just as we say drive you up the wall and it just seems like sometimes it just piles on one right after the other I know in my own life's experience that is true many of you know of course uh, uh, years ago a few years ago uh, that I experienced the death of three of my, my three brothers uh, and uh, my father two of my brothers and my father all three of them died in four months time I couldn't get through grieving over the loss of one of my brothers and then the other one died and then my dad died and then Linda comes in two months later and tells me that she has breast cancer and we have to go through surgery for that. Thank God she's well and, and doing fine and then after that her mother dies. So it just seems bang and one right after the other, after the other, after the other. You don't get through grieving and dealing and working through one until something else happens. And so sometimes it does seem like that, that, uh, that life is like that. It just seems to be one tragedy and one tragic accident or, or trouble that, that comes our way. And uh, when we are experiencing trouble, it just seems like we can't stand it any longer. I read about a man in a large eastern city uh, who was writing to the local newspaper to report that the, he felt that the country was in worse condition than what most people suspected. His evidence, he said, every time I call dial a prayer, I get a busy signal. <laughs> troubles. I've got a heap of troubles and I've got to work them out. But I look around and see there's trouble all about. And when I see my troubles, I just look up and grin, count all the troubles that I'm not in. So if you just look around and you think you've got troubles, you'll always find someone who has many more 
or who have worse kinds of troubles than what you have. But I think we can all agree to some extent with Job, life is brief. Even though you may live to be 100 plus, it's still brief compared to all eternity. Someone has said, if you want to remember, uh, know how long you'll be remembered after you die, you put your finger in a glass of water and the time that it takes for that hole that you've made with your finger in the water to disappear is how long you'll be remembered. You pull it in, pull it out, they're gone. They're gone. So life is filled with trouble, he said. Secondly, life is as fragile as a flower. Look at it in the first part of verse 2. Go back to Job 14 in verse 2. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. And what he's suggesting here, I think, is that, that the cut flower. Flowers are beautiful. They're gorgeous. Look at these beautiful flowers that are here today that graces our, our table and our platform here. Aren't they gorgeous? They're just beautiful. But they're cut flowers. And unfortunately, they'll not last because they're not connected to life. They're beautiful for a moment, for a few days, maybe weeks. But then they wither and they die. And Job is saying, that's what life is like. You live for a short period of time, and then just like the flowers, it's gone. You remember, Jesus talked about how much care God has for us as he compared us to flowers and the grass of his day. When he said, when you worry, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear and so forth. Uh, he said, look at, the, look at the grass and the flowers of the fields, how beautiful they are. And think about how much care God has taken to make such beautiful flowers that are just here for a while and then they're gathered up and used as kindling in order to start a fire. And he says, yet there's even Solomon, as wealthy and as rich as he was in all of his glory, Solomon was nothing in comparison to the beauty of the flowers and the grass of the fields. But we are like cut flowers. We're here for a little while. And then disappear. Psalm 103 says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place is remembered no more. So Job said life is full of trouble. That life is as fragile as a flower. The third thing that he says is that life fades like a shadow. Look at the last part of verse 2. Chapter 14 and verse 2. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Now, the New Living Translation translates the words does not remain as disappears. So he said, it's just like a shadow. It just doesn't remain. It just disappears. And the subject or the idea here is uh, that of the rotation of the earth and the, and the angle of the sun. The shadows last for a little while, but then they vanish. They vanish. And he says, your life is like that. The writer of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 29, 15 says, We are sojourners before you, O Lord, and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days are on this earth like a shadow, and they are no longer. So our days are like a shadow. Jesus, you remember, said, when you make your plans that you're going to do this and do that, he said, be careful. Uh, James says, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And he said, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we'll go to this place and do this tomorrow and accomplish and so forth. But if the Lord will, if not, you may not. You may, there may be some of you here today, myself included, we may not live this afternoon. We may not be alive tomorrow. 
Because life is so fragile and so short and it's like a shadow that it's here and then suddenly it's gone. Notice the second thing, not only his statement about life being so brief, but there is the lament that he makes about death and he says three things about it. First of all, he says death is certain. Skip down to verse 5 of chapter 14 and notice what he says. Since the days are determined, the number of his month is with you and his limits you and he his limits you have set so that he cannot pass and what he's talking about here of course is the certainty of death that your days your months your weeks your hours how long you're going to live is already determined by the providence of God by the pre, uh, sovereignty of the Lord the Lord numbers your days he numbers your months and God knows how much time exactly you have. Now, you don't and I don't. I don't know how long I'm going to live. Neither do you. But I'm not going to live a day longer than God has set and determined how I'm going to live. Psalm 89, 48 says, no one can live forever. All will die. No one can escape the power of the grave. So we're all going to die. Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, none of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the, uh, rescue the wicked in the day of death. So it's coming. And it's as much appointed unto the Lord, by the Lord that a man will die. So it will happen. And it will be certain. But notice also, not only is death certain, life has set boundaries. He mentions this in the latter part of verse 5 where he says, The number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. In other words, there's nothing. God has set a limit on your life, how long you're going to live, and doesn't care how much oat uh, meal you eat or how less fat that you eat. or well, you, You'll live a little longer maybe. And especially if you eat a lot of greasy foods, you won't squeak when you walk. <laughs> but uh, it's not going to extend, as far as God is concerned, it's not going to extend your, your life one, one hour longer, one day longer. God has set the boundaries and you're going to be born here and you're going to die here. Only God knows when, but it's going to happen. And there could be a hundred doctors standing around your bed when you're dying and they cannot do a single thing for you if it is your time to die. You will die. God has set the boundaries on that. When man's predetermined dates are up, he cannot live one day beyond that set limit. Third, this finality is disturbing. And Job makes a a contrast and a comparison. Beginning with verse 9, he talks about a tree. He says a tree or a tree stump uh, has uh, the assurance of, of life after death. Man doesn't. And he says in verse, uh, verse 9, look at it. He says, uh, well, verse 7, for there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, he said, you can cut a tree down. And if there's water there, and uh, it's possible that that tree can sprout, bud, and grow again. Man can't do that. A tree can, but man can't. 
Look at verse 9. He talks about the water of a lake or a river. Verse 9, as the scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. Uh, so it just a tree and uh, will, will flourish again. Man and water, he compares it to man is likened to water that evaporates and, and it's gone. And so man lies down and he never rises again if you follow that philosophy and he sleeps. And so the word sleep is also found in verse 12. Look at verse 12. So man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Now you have to remember that this is Old Testament times and their understanding of God and future life were not necessarily as you and I have it because we live in New Testament times. And I shared yesterday with, with those who were at the funeral for for, for Aura, Byram, and as I do for all people's funerals that I conduct, that the, the grave is not the final resting place for our loved ones. Sometimes we refer to the, to the grave as, well, this is the final resting place for so-and-so. No, it's not. It's a temporary resting place. The Latin word for cemetery is the same word from which we get our English word for inn, I-N-N, or hotel. What do you do in a hotel? What do you do at an inn? If you're on a trip, you don't intend to stay there permanently. You're on a journey. You've got reservations. You spend a night, a couple of nights. Maybe you're somewhere you're, you're going to stay a whole week, but you don't stay there permanently. Your house is not in an inn. It's not in a hotel. You go there to lie down and rest, and you get up the next day, and you go on your journey. Cemeteries are like that for the body. The word sleep in the scriptures is never used in reference to the soul. The Bible tells us that when the soul or the spirit dies, it goes to heaven to the God who made it and the body to the earth from whence it came. But even the body as Christian, well, not just Christian, the lost will be resurrected too. Those who've done bad and evil to the resurrection of damnation, according to John chapter 5, to those who have done good and followed the leadership of the Lord Jesus and accepted him as Lord and Savior to the resurrection of life. So everybody's going to be resurrected. It's just where you're going to spend eternity is determined by how, what you do with Jesus. If you love Jesus and have accepted him, then you're going to go to heaven. If you have what you want, you're going to go to hell. The was very clear about that. But your soul does not go to sleep. It immediately goes either to be with the Lord or separated from him forever. And so he says sleep is just an example of temporarily separation. This brings us to the third idea, and that is he raises a question about resurrection. Look at verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Uh, now, Sheol uh, is uh, the Old Testament word for Hades in the New Testament. It is a word that simply means the realm of the dead. If you could just picture a circle... Uh, in your mind and divide it in half and one half would be uh, Hades and the other half of course uh, would be uh, Sheol and uh, if you are uh, don't know a belief, uh, Christ as, as your savior then you go to Hades uh, and uh, you'll stay there until um, the end times and uh, in, in hell it's, it's hell you remember um, Lazarus uh, was uh, separated he, when he died he went to the bosom of Abraham which was the Old Testament or Hebrew way of saying that he was, he was with the Lord. Uh, Lazarus, uh, the rich man, uh, was separated from him. He was in torment. He was in hell. And he uh, was suffering. Uh, he was conscious. Uh, 
He knew where he was. Uh, he had feeling because he, he said he was tormented by the flames. He had thirst because he said to Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come and cool my tongue. Uh, and so he was still very conscious of where he was and what was happening to him. And so they had a, a limited understanding of what the future life was like. And so in verse 13, Job says, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. And he says, in essence, what he's saying is I'm going through a difficult time. I'm full of trouble. Uh, I just wish that you would put me somewhere and hide me and, and turn your wrath away from me to somebody else. Because you see, Job doesn't understand what's going on. We have the advantage in reading the book of Job because we have the story from the very beginning. It all began when Satan appeared before the throne of God and demanded that he have the right to, to, to make him suffer and kill him. And, and Job didn't know all of this. And then these three so-called friends came up and, and made life even more miserable for him. They accused Job of having done something very evil that was what would explain why he was having to suffer so. And Job throughout the entire book maintains his innocence. I haven't done anything to cause all of these troubles to fall upon me. And now in this verse he is saying, I just wish God would go ahead and, and kill me and put me in Sheol and hide me and protect me until it's time for me to stand before him in judgment and let me be at peace. That's what he's asking for. And then in verse 14, he is saying, if a man dies, will he live again? And all the days of my struggle will wait until my change comes. Just kind of postpone the, the judgment and let me at least rest for a while. And so will God remember me after I die? Will God change me after I die? And so he's raising these questions about the resurrection. Now let's uh, go quickly to the 19th chapter and try to finish this up as he expresses his confidence about the future. So in the 19th chapter, one of the most beautiful passages of scripture that I can find in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says in chapter 19, beginning with verse 23. All that my words were written... Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. In other words, would somebody take an iron stylus and carve my words and then fill those uh, words with, with uh, lead, fill them with lead? He, he wants something permanent. Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now notice he, he's not saying I think or I hope so. This word know means with confidence. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's what he's saying in verse 25. Evidently something has happened in his progression of understanding about what's going to take place. And he says, I know that's not going to happen now, but someday, someday I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last day he will take his place on this earth that even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I shall behold for myself, whom my eyes will see and not another and my heart faints within me. My, what confidence has developed in his heart and in his mind that he's come to the conclusion, I know, I don't understand everything, but I know this, I know that my Redeemer lives. 
Now, you need to understand the Redeemer concept is what is called the kinsman Redeemer concept. It's in the Old Testament. And what this means is that if you were an individual and trouble fell upon you and, and you had to be sold into slavery uh, in order to pay off your debts, if you had a relative who uh, was well off, they could step in and pay off your debt and redeem you from that and set you free. If you were destitute and poor, if, and if someone loved you enough, doesn't necessarily have to be a kinsman, but, but they could have, stepped in and say, well, I'll pay that person's debt and I'll take the responsibility of taking care of them unto myself. Did you know there's a story about this in the Old Testament? It's called the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. You remember how Ruth and Naomi, their husbands died and they went back to their homeland and when they got over there, uh, there was a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz looked at Ruth and, oh, my goodness. She's a beautiful woman. And so because she was destitute and her mother-in-law couldn't help her either, she went over into the field that belonged to Boaz and she would glean. There was a, a policy and a rule that they had that when you went in to, to, to reap the harvest, you didn't just pick it dry you would always purposely leave some behind for those who were less fortunate than you and didn't have a means to, to survive, could go in there and glean enough to survive. And so Ruth went into the field that belonged to Boaz and she began to glean the wheat that she could take back to her, uh, to Naomi that they could eat and live. Well, Boaz saw her, fell in love with her. He told his servants, don't you glean everything there. You purposely leave something there for Ruth. Now, he fell in love with her. He wanted to marry her, but they had a kind of a, a procedure that had to follow. If a, if a man died, then his brother was supposed to marry his wife and give children by, for his brother through her. And there was someone else that was the head of Boaz until Boaz went to him and sat down with him and said, look, I'm in love with, with, uh, with Ruth and I want to be her kinsman redeemer. And whatever obligation, he says, well, I, I, can't, I can't pay the, the, uh, the debt, and uh, so you, you, t you take her. And so Boaz became the husband to Ruth, and they had a child, and they had children, they had children, and through that lineage, Jesus was born. Kinsman, redeemer. And now Job has this concept, oh, I want somebody up there who can stand up for me and speak on my behalf and relieve me from all of these false accusations that have been leveled against me. And he says, I know my kinsman redeemer is alive. He's talking about Jesus, although he didn't know that by his name. It's what he's talking about. He's talking about in the last days. Look at it in verse 20, uh, uh, 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last or the last day he will take this stand on the earth. Who else could that have been other than the Lord Jesus? He knows that something is going to happen in the future that he is going to live forever and he will be justified and he will be pronounced innocent of the false accusations that he's made. And who's going to do all of that? Well, the very kinsman Redeemer who stands upon this earth in the last days. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, redeeming him from all of this. I know that my Redeemer lives. Notice in verse 26, he says, I'm going to sin. 
I'm going to see him with my own eyes, even though he says in verse 26, uh, even though my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. This word skin shall be destroyed literally means to be stripped. Just like if you shot a deer and you just stripped the deer and dressed the deer so that you could feast on it. He said, that's what's going to happen to my body. My skin's just going to be stripped off of me. And we know, I don't mean to be crude and rude about this, but when you die, and even though they may embalm you, eventually it's all going to deteriorate. There'll be nothing left but bone. All the skin will be stripped away from you. And that's what he's saying here. Even though my skin is stripped off of my skeleton, the day will come. I will stand for myself in my flesh and with my own eyes I'm going to see my kinsman redeemer. My, what progressed? We have the same belief. We have the same conviction in our own hearts and mind. My body someday, if the Lord delays his return, I'm going to die and uh, my body will be um, embalmed, I suppose, whatever uh, my family wants to do with me. And uh, my body's going to be buried and it will deteriorate. It will return to the dust from whence it came. But when Jesus comes back, that grave that I've been buried on or will be buried in will be opened up. That casket that has been sealed uh, is going to break open or else I'm just going to pass through it. And in the twinkling of an eye, quicker than you can blink an eye. The word in a moment in the twinkling of an eye comes from a Greek word that literally means the smallest, most minute element that is left when you split an atom. That's how quick it's going to happen. Quicker than your eye can blink, you're going to be changed. Corruption putting on incorruption, mortality putting on immortality, and then shall be brought to pass the saying, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is the victory you hope to win? Paul goes on in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians to say that it was all because of the Lord Jesus through his victory. He's given us the victory over sin and death and the grave. And Job says, I don't understand all of it, but I know this someday I'm going to stand up in my own skin and bone that's been transformed and I will look upon God for myself and nobody else is going to look for me. I am going to look and see him for myself. Paul raises the question in 1 Corinthians 15, but if Christ is not risen from the dead, our Lord's words are meaningless. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we're all a bunch of fools for being here this morning. And you're a fool for believing in Jesus and following Christianity, if it's not true. If it's not true. So the question of the ages that Job asked, will a man who dies, live again. It took eons of time, years and generations, but the echo comes from the chambers of an empty tomb. Yes, if a man dies, he shall live again. You see, Jesus did not survive death. What the world knows is that death did a terrible thing to Jesus. But Jesus didn't survive death. He didn't succumb to death. He didn't endure death. Jesus conquered it. He conquered it. He won. 
And so the punchline of the New Testament is not a weak cry. Help. It's a triumphant shout. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He lives. And because he lives, we too shall live. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, there are always a lot of questions that run through our mind when we think about death and dying. And yes, sometimes we entertain the question that Job did so long ago that if a man dies, will he live again? And how grateful we are with hallelujah thanksgiving that because of Jesus, your son and our dear blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on the cross and was buried, but rose again on the third day to become the first fruit of many who will rise again. Hasten the day, dear Lord, that that will be a reality so that we can all be together looking upon your face, your beautiful kinsman redeemer face, and we will be together in your presence for all eternity. What a wonderful, wonderful experience that will be. Bless now, Holy Spirit, this time of invitation as we extend the opportunity for people to respond to your saving grace, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, bring conviction to our hearts, and if there are decisions that need to be made, please lead us and guide us to your honor and glory and to our good. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Andre's going to lead us in our hymn of invitation, and if there's a decision that you need to make public today, we're here to greet you. If you've never been saved, of course, we're here first and foremost to help you to make your decision for Christ. If there's um, someone here today looking for a church home, you feel this is where God wants you to come and place your life and membership. If there's some other decision that you need prayer for, just come here to the front and pray. That's what it's all about, folks. So as we stand and sing, you come. <laughs>